You can ship down to what the Virginia plan is. Well, it should be Virginia. Yeah, there it is. The central features of the Virginia plan, that's, that's my summary of it. But where it says the text of the Virginia plan, that can get you right into the text of the Virginia plan itself. Various texts of the Virginia plan from, from the, um, presented by Edmund Randolph. And then if you really want to get uh, serious, we close this. If you want to get serious, you can get into Madison's notes of the debates for that day. That shows you which is what you have in your text. But everything is there, so there are various layers that you can start off by saying, well, Act 1, Scene 1, and Act 1, Scene 1 deals with this. Act 1, Scene 1 will deal with this, and you get into the detail. And then once you finish that, then you can start again and go, Act uh, Scene 3, the first discussion of the Virginia plan. Then we did the Madison-Sherman exchange. Then we did the second discussion of the Virginia plan. So I was following that outline last night, and... I wanted to show you today how you could get in. And then all these people who are mentioned, you have them linked so that, that bam, you can get into the biography at that particular time. If we close the, the, the four-act drama, uh, well, today what we're going to be doing is act two, three, and four so that um, you can follow along. Uh, if you have your computer or, or tonight, you can follow what we've been doing, but I'm going to be highlighting certain features. I can't do everything, but there's a sort of a, a handheld way of making this material accessible without at the same time dumbing it down. You can see it's not being dumbed down. It's layered down to the level that your students or you wish to explore in that particular time. The day-by-day summary is another thing I mentioned to you yesterday where you have the proposition. So instead of doing it as a, a four-act drama, what it's doing is generating the proposition. So on Monday the 14th, the date fixed for the convention, only eight delegates are present. Um, and then back into Madison's notes. And if you wanted to go back, you could go into Christie's painting, you could go to all the other things at the side. Bam, right, right back into it. If we close this, please. And you just, just scroll for, for about 10 seconds or so. You can see resolution one, resolution two, resolution three. And that, that keeps you focused. That shows, well, what are they talking about? And in the midst of a discussion on resolution four and resolution five, um, Madison's reaction, that chasm was left in this part of the plan. And there's Jimmy. Uh, not, not as he was at that particular time, but as he was later on, where he wore his nightcap. Then if you... And so it goes on. See, resolution seven, resolution. If we, let's, let's, go until, let's go until we get to the 5th of June. So they get resolution seven, eight, nine, a lot on nine, then 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Bam, they're finished. See? That shows you that they've gone through the entire set of the 15 Virginia plan between, between May the 29th and June the 5th. So they've, they've done it. So what do they do on June the 6th? They start again. And so by the two ways I've tried to show you, one as a four-act drama and two a day-by-day summary, you should be able to, um, well, hopefully not get too lost. It's, 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 not, it's not difficult to, to get lost in the detail, but I hope that this will help be a guide and, and encourage you right, to go to the next act and go to the next act and see it through to the end. By the way, most political theorists stop about July the 16th. I think they give up on that and go on and read the Federalist Papers. If you, close, if you close this, right, then the major themes of the Constitutional Confession has really been generated by people like you, who, when I've given this, 
from time to time, somebody comes up and says, well, look, if I really wanted to understand about the Connecticut Compromise, or the slave trade, or why three delegates didn't sign, or the role of George Washington at the, at the, Virginia, at the Virginia delegation, uh, where would I go, what would I do? So what I've done is to put together the uh, sort of a summary of the pages and the issues to where you would go for these. And this is an ongoing, right uh, at Ashbrook the other day when I was with, with um, Lucas and, and, and Peter and Chris and Roger, they, they, uh, a, student, a, a teacher asked me, well, uh, could you write up something on Rhode Island? And I said, I'd be delighted to. Uh, so that will be coming. That's forthcoming. <laughs> Probably be the longest one of them all. <laughs> and New Hampshire will be close behind. Right, if you, clo- if you close this, then if you, if you wanted to really get deep, I mean really deep, then you could go to the notes of the debates of the Federal Convention. There's, and as, if you look at that, there's Madison's notes. And the day, I, just take the day. I just, just, just pick a day, June the 6th. Um, bam. And that tells you what's going on on June the 6th. If you go all the way down, I think, I think it's in this one. If you go right to the end uh, of the day... Well, I get, yeah, there you go. You, you, there's a search site. So on any particular day, and anything, if you wanted to say, you wanted a complete compilation of, of anything dealing with slavery, you just type slavery in. And it kick, kick up all the days that slavery was discussed. Or if you wanted to know to what extent the founders talk about justice. If you're interested for, see, that's, that's what I, there's another area to, how to get into this. You break it down day by day. Break it down by proposition. Look at the convention through the eyes of one framer. Like this, well, this year, I'm going to look at it through the eyes of Sherman. Another thing to do is to look at look at the convention through the through the eyes of an issue, and trace the issue as it unfolds. And so you can do that with this help. It's 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 not a substitute for reading, but it's an encouragement to do that. And instead of trying to buy some book that will tell you everything you need to know, I would encourage you to go on the journey yourself with a guide like this to create your own narrative and way of, of encouraging your students in, in the best spirit of the frame was that is self-reliance and self-government. If we go back uh, w- one, more t- one more time, uh, I, will, I will end this brief coverage t- before we get in today with, with uh, a, a, quick, a, a quick look at this. You can take a look here, the, the, the age of the framers is, that it is a break, let's just take a look at that. That's a breakdown of who are in their 20s, who are in their 30s. And if you talk, just stop there, for example, look at the 30s. You've got Alexander Hamilton, Edmund Randolph, Gouverneur Morris, James Madison, uh, uh, Gouverneur Morris. You've got, those are some of the movers and shakers. This is not an old man's convention. This is, we think of the founding fathers with wigs, etc. But this is a, this is a, young, uh, uh, a young person's, um, um, well, relatively young anyway, for, for us in this room. That's a, those are the kids. Um, and then these are the people in their 40s. And the average age was 43 of the, at the entire convention. So that, and then if you wanted to, you could say, well, who is this John Blair? And you just go, John Blair? Oh, that's John Blair. That can hit you. So it depends on where you where you slice into the in, into the website. Then you can start. That can be your way of generating further interest. If you let's close that, please, and then close this one. And then we can say, well, how about their educational background? Um, where do they go to school? What do they do? 
Let's just show you if you scroll down who went to Harvard, who went to Yale. Who, they, here's here's uh, Princeton. Look at all the different people who went to Princeton. And look where they came from. They didn't all come from New Jersey. And so that they had, so had this continental experience at various colleges. Um, probably the only person who didn't graduate was Alexander Hamilton. But he didn't need to. Then we've got the, the continental experience. <clears throat> who, signed the, who signed the Declaration of Independence from, and, and came to the convention? That, that, that shows you who, who did. You've got who had continental Congress experience? Who, had sta- who, was at the, who helped write their own state, convention, state constitutions? Who signed the Articles? Who had Confederation Congress? I make the distinction between Continental Congress and Confederation Congress. Continental Congress being from 1774 to like 1781, and the Confederation Congress being that one who were under the Articles of Confederation. I just simply do that for, for, for the purposes of showing that there were pe- people there in different capacities. Who signed the Constitution? Who went to Annapolis? Who signed the Constitution? And then the last one, or yeah, who went to the state ratifying conventions? Look at all the people who went to the state ratifying conventions. I mentioned that at least one from each state at, in Philadelphia here went to the ratifying conventions, and Crystal picked that up in a couple of days. Well, and what did the founders do after they founded? The answer they went and served in the government in the first Congress. And, uh, and so there's a sense in which the first Congress is the completion, or at least, a, um, if not the completion, at least a, a, a very important continuation of this story. And Madison plays a very, very important part in the first Congress. And so does Sherman. Madison and Sherman show up throughout, and a great paper for students to do would be to follow the role of Sherman throughout this. He's the only one, by the way, who signed the Declaration and the Articles, was in Philadelphia, the Constitution, went to the ratifying convention, and was in the first Congress. Uh, that's a guy who's clearly you can follow the story by, by, by means of, what, of, of his contribution. All right, um, that, that's, the, uh, that's a brief introduction to the website and what you can do with it. And uh, additions are always welcome. Some people find the Christie painting to be very helpful. Others find the map. Other people find the four-act the, the, the four drama. So please use it and let us know how, you, how it helps you, how, it, um, how it might, uh, we might improve it to, to help you. All right. Thank you. Thank um, Peter and Roger also for 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 their work at the Ashbrook Center for bringing this to to your attention. All right. Today we get let's get more serious about uh, about Act Two. When we left our story last night. The, uh, the Constitutional Convention had agreed on the amended Virginia plan, and part of the amended uh, Virginia plan was, is, is that was amended in a couple of ways. First of all, the Council of Revision was defeated. And secondly, Madison had lost the election of the upper house by the lower house, and the, the three-fifths clause had been added in a way to defeat the equal representation notion that um, Sherman was, was pushing for on June the 11th. I think that if you pay attention, 
not only to the Virginia plan itself, but the June 6th speech of Sherman and Madison, and also the June 11th exchange in which the three-fifths clause makes its appearance and the equal representation of the states is defeated. Those two days I would recommend very highly to you to pay attention to um, because it reveals an incredible amount about uh, what about Act One. Well, <clears throat> if you want the textual basis for the amended plan, you can take a look in your Madison's notes on pages 148 to 151, and that becomes the text for Act Two, just as the text for Act One was the Virginia plan and the alternative plans. The text for Act Two is the 19-point uh, um, amended Virginia plan. And I draw your attention on page 148 to 151 to uh, the, the following. You will see that they've agreed in Resolution 2 there'll be bicameralism. In Resolution 3, that the House shall be elected by the people and their members shall, let go for, for, shall be for three years. Um, that the, the upper branch shall be for seven years, that uh, each branch shall originate acts in, in Resolution 5. In number 6, uh, the, the negative of state laws is still there. The uh, ability to, to uh, enact legislation for which the states are incompetent is still there. Um, Resolution 7 now is the House, excuse me, is, is the House representation. So that's where you would go to find um, any dis discussion dealing with um, free inhabitants plus three-fifths clause. It's for the House. So it will be now Resolution 7, if you keep that in mind. Resolution 8 is that the representation in the Senate shall be exactly the same so that Resolution 7 and Resolution 8 are going to become very important textual um, components for this Act 2 because although the amended plan has passed and although we have free plus three-fifths in the House and free plus three-fifths in the Senate, that doesn't go away. Despite the fact that it seems like the Virginia plan has won, it, <coughs> it really hasn't, as we, as we will notice. On Resolution um, nine, you will see that we have decided on a president that um, it'll still be chosen by the national legislature that will have a, 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 a veto power in, in, in number 10. That means the council of revision has been defeated, but the veto power of the president has been introduced. Resolution, um, resolution 11 says we're going to have a national judiciary, but we're going to get to it. We're not really there yet. Resolution 13 talks about the scope of the judiciary, but hold on, folks. We haven't, we haven't, um, um, we, we're not, we haven't, we, we still have a lot of things, a lot of things to do. Resolution 16 really is, if you want, if somebody asks you where does, how, I mean, if Shea's Rebellion is so important as a, as a, as a motivation device to get us to Philadelphia, where does, where in the documents does a response to Shea's Rebellion occur? I think I mentioned last night, I think Shea's Rebellion has been a bit overdone. Certainly Madison said the, the reason why we're here is because of what the state legislatures have been doing. And he doesn't mention Shea's at all. To the extent that Shea's is important, it's Resolution 16. 
that a Republican Constitution and its existing laws ought to be guaranteed to each state by the United States. What that, in effect, means is that under the Articles of Confederation, Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, Massachusetts couldn't call on the federal government to come in and help. The reason being is there's no such provision in the Articles of Confederation. So what Article 16 does is say that in the event that there is law-breaking, which means anti-Republican activity, which means outright disobedience of the rule of law and the majority rule, then the state of Massachusetts or any state can call on the federal government for assistance. Now, that gets changed down the line to mean, well, well, who... Does the Fed just come in when they think they have to come in? No, 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 no. It's that that when on the invitation of the state legislature, or if the state legislature is not in session, then when the governor... So it gets qualified a little later. But if if you want the documentary evidence in response, then that would be be the response to the idea of Shays' Rebellion. Also, uh, although it doesn't say so, one might... Uh, to be all kinds of riots, not just shades, any, any kind of disturbance. That would be the, the calling of the feds to, to, be, to assist a state in upholding the rule of law. Uh, n- number 19, I think, is important in terms of what you've been doing on the Declaration of Independence. It says, uh, it's still vague, but you, you can get the point, that the amendments which shall be offered to the Confederation by the Convention, remember, they're under this mandate to report back to the Congress, uh, or at a proper time or times after the approbation of Congress. And that is that we want Congress to agree, but we don't want to stop there because what we really want is consent of the government. We want the ratification by the people of this document to be submitted to an assembly or assemblies of representatives recommended by the several state, by the several legislatures to be expressly chosen by the people to consider and, dis- and decide thereon. In short... The Articles of Confederation were decided upon unanimously by the state legislatures. Our whole point of being Philadelphia is to place Republican government on a national basis and on a consent of the governed, and thereby fulfill the principles of the Declaration that it's the right of the people to choose the form of government under which they shall live. But the people can be assembled in various fashions. So I think this number, number 19 is an extremely important uh, um, expression of the notion of, of the consent of the governed. All right. Now, there's the 19-point amended Virginia plan. And you think, well, what are we going to do now? We've settled the big issue of the role of, a, of the structural representation of the states and the people. So why don't we now turn to the question of the construction of the presidency or perhaps the construction of the judiciary? That's what's next in line. Or if we're not interested so much in the structure of those things, why don't we start talking about the powers? Why don't we talk about the veto power of Congress and the power that Congress has to to do anything that the states are incompetent? But they don't. Lansing and Yates and Patterson and others put forth a two-pronged critique of the uh, amended Virginia plan. And the, uh, the critique goes like this. And they introduce it on June the 20th, and they, and they pound at it. The critique is this. First of all, the, the convention has exceeded its mandate. That is, we are, in fact, altering the structure of government when we've only been sent here to alter the powers. 
The New Jersey plan is consistent with the mandate of Congress. The Virginia plan and the amended Virginia plan never mentioned, never mind about the Hamilton plan, he's off, the, uh, over, overstepped the limited mandate. So we've got the issue of the rule of law. And uh, that's, a, that's a very important position to, to take. That, uh, um, and it puts the burden of proof, it seems to me, on the Madison folks to demonstrate two things. One, they are not exceeding the mandate. But if, but if they are exceeding the mandate, it's justified. And in fact, it's the second argument that, um, that Madison and Wilson and Randolph and the others rely on. And Randolph puts it perhaps the most bluntly, where he says, why should I scruple with such matters when the future of the republic is at stake? Of course, there isn't a republic yet, so we're not talking about something that's in existence which brings me back to my point yesterday, it's not so much that over the last four years there's been this long train of abuses justifying um, uh, alteration, but rather it's the long train of abuses is down the line if we don't do something about it, and this is the opportunity to do something about it, and if we miss this miracle in Philadelphia, we're done for, which seems to me to, to, to really highlight the whole point to statesmanship. Statesmanship is taking advantage of opportunities which come your way and not, and not wasting them. So that, the, so that you've got these two positions. The rule of law position of the, of the, the Shermanites, let's call them, and the, uh, and, the, and the quest for good government or better government to secure liberty and justice and the principles of the revolution um, that come out of the Madison, the Madison folks. The second prong attack that the Shermanites offer is the people won't buy it. We, they aren't used to this. Think about it. This, this, even in the amended Virginia plan, had never been seen in the history of the world. Never before has one government, over three million people, over such an extensive territory. Uh, this is the stuff that Madison will have to explain f- even in greater detail in Federalist. 10 and elsewhere um, to, a, to a suspecting public. Um, the argument, again, is, is that republics are... are, are, uh, are the defense of a republic is, 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 it depends upon small area and a homogeneous population. And what you're doing is spreading it out over a heterogeneous population. And, uh, and this won't work. And the people aren't used to this. So they won't buy it. So we are, in fact, wasting our time. We're wasting our time here for four months, going back and then presenting something that will never happen. Shouldn't we pay attention to the possible, not just somehow the best? Well, of course, statesmanship is somewhere in between. It's not just doing the best. That's utopianism. Nor is it just simply doing the possible. That's being low politics. Statesmanship is doing the best which is possible. And what the Madison forces are, in fact, saying is that if we do our best here, which is possible, and then we go to the people and explain that this is the best which is possible, and the people of America and their genius, not to me to say their IQ, but their inclinations, why wouldn't they buy it? Why wouldn't they? And if we persuade them properly and explain it properly, why won't they buy into this? E-men of little faith. How do you know what the people want? Where's Gallup now that we need him? And anyway, what are you going to do? Have a focus group? 
And I'll run an opinion poll and see what can pass. What is this? Uh, it's 21st century? No, come on. Let's do the best we can. And that, that discussion, in effect, continues for about seven days and forms the first part of Act Two, going back and forth and back and forth. And you can say, well, what has this got to do with any proposition on the table? Well, the answer is, it's a revisiting of the representation in the Senate. And when you say, well, I don't, I don't understand that. Well, the rule of law is, argument is that every state has an equal vote under the Articles of Confederation. That's the rule of law. And what else about buying it? People, people of the states are used to equal representation in the continental government. You are going, you're going against what we're used to, and you're going against, to, going against what the, um, the, the, the states are entitled to. Mass entitled to? What are we talking about? Yes, we, ha- we owe it to the states, says Sherman and, 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 and Patterson. Oh, this is a mere wartime document, says Wilson. Um, the Articles of Confederation was just put together to fight the British. Now we have a ch- chance to be an American. And you're going to elevate this wartime document into a, a permanent compact for the American people for their future? Don't you know what, the, what is at stake? The future of the world is at stake. Liberty and justice are at stake. And here you are mucking around with the rule of law and talking about each state wanting equal representation. <laughs> Come on. Rise to the occasion. In the midst of this discussion, then, about equal representation in the Senate, which is what we're talking about, a discussion about why we need a Senate takes place. And on June the 26th, on pages, uh, on page 193, Madison introduces why he thinks a Senate is necessary. And just as his June 6th speech anticipates Federalist 10, his June the 26th speech anticipates Federalist 63. To go dot, 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 to forward a bit to, and to try to, to, to um, blend the stuff on the convention with the work that Lucas and Chris are going to be doing on the Federalist Papers, you'll recall that Federalist 10 makes the argument that to break and control the violence of faction, we need to extend the orbit and to introduce a multiplicity of opinions, passions, and interests. And that is the argument of Federalist, excuse me, of, of the June 6th speech. On June the 26th, Madison says, you know, there, wouldn't it be fortunate if there, were a, if there was a body of temperate citizens who could resist the intemperate actions of, of, of the people themselves. Um, it's not usual that the people will be intemperate, but from time to time, the majority in the House and the majority in the electorate might become intemperate and engage in tyrannical conduct. Isn't it, wouldn't it be lovely if you had a Senate that could resist, resist the, the um, intemp- uh, temptuous behavior of, of, tempestuous behavior of the majority, and help them through this difficult period. It's like saying, 
If someone is, has been drinking too much and says, well, I'm going home now, and you say, no, you're not, I'll take the keys away from you, and you <laughs> sleep on it. Go and sleep in the couch, and in the morning, I'll give you the keys back. And if in the morning, wake up, the person says, oh, fine, gosh, man, I, I, I feel a lot better today. Uh, well, here are your keys. Go home. And he said, thank you. I really appreciate that. That's the idea of what a friend is. That a, fr- a friend does not let you go and drive drunk. A friend takes away the keys. But a friend is also somebody who will give you the keys back the next day, rather than, say, <laughs> lock you up and throw away the keys. And, and, and what Madison is trying to suggest is this sort of this delicate balance, check and balance, that the role of the Senate is to resist the drunk until the drunk has sobered up. And when the drunk has sobered up, then the, then the sober person is capable of driving and governing themselves again. And so the role of the Senate, as explained here, is that the, the, the proper job of the Senate, which is why you have the longer term in office, if you think about it, this, the proposition on the table here is representation in the Senate, and how long shall the senator serve? And Madison is trying to argue for nine years. And the duration in office, his, his point is, with nine years, this should give the Senate the longevity, the continuity to be able to resist a house that is probably more governed by the immediate moment being in there for two or three years. And so that's the role of the Senate. And I'll just um, indicate um, one, um, one or two passages. On page 194, he says, wouldn't it be great, about ten lines down, if we had this body that might be able to resist the sudden impulses uh, of people who were, uh, who were tempted to commit injustice on the minority. In other words, as, the, as June the 6th introduces the extended republic as a check on majority faction, June the 26th introduces the Senate as an institutional check on an intemperate majority. One more time. The extended orbit is sort of like a societal solution. If you spread people out you make it more difficult for them to discover their nastiness. And then when they discover their nastiness, you want to be, have an institutional check so they don't become nasty too quickly. Or if they become nasty quickly, they can be stopped or, or resisted. So Federalist 10 and June the 6th is the societal, extend the orbit. June the 26th and Federalist 63 are the institutional ways that so if the society breaks down and has its wishes come right into the house, which is where it's likely to happen, you at least have a first line of defense in the Senate to resist these, uh, these moments of drunkenness that, so we can get wise and decent legislation. So that Madison's role of the Senate is not to represent the states. Madison's role for the Senate is as a Republican check for the diseases of Republican government. That is, the Senate is supposed to help in the battle against majority faction. Sherman is still trapped in the notion of where do the states fit in? Where do the states fit in? Um, Madison continues, having said, isn't it wonderful to have this, um, this body to resist the sudden temp- some Im- impulses of temptation, commit injustice on the minority? And he goes down, he says, in framing a system which we wish to last for ages. That's a theme that Chris and Lucas will pick up in the Federalist Papers. We wish to, to create a government to last into remote futurity. 
Uh, uh, in other words, we're not just mere politicians here, a reform caucus in action, trying to drum up some, something and get home fast. We're here for the duration. We're here to create something that will last for ages. And think about that. That's an incredible, that's an incredible claim. We're sitting here in this hot place in Philadelphia with a stench outside and the heat outside, and the window's closed. Why are we here? We're here to, to, for, to create a more perfect union. We're here to, in fact, all right, illusions of grandeur. To make, to make democracy succeed where it's never succeeded before. Every single regime in the history of the world has failed. That's a very sobering, to use that analogy, uh, moment. I, I, I mean, who, in, in our lifetime, look what has happened. Chris? I just want to say, if they read, uh, read further, they'll see Madison saying, words, just what you're saying, that uh, we're digesting a plan which in its operation will decide forever the state of Republican government. That's it. Exactly. Thank you. That, uh, we were just, that's why we're here. Don't talk to us about what has happened over the last four years and is there a long train of abuses? This is the point. We are here to decide the fate of Republican government. We're here to decide, uh, and we're going to do this for, for the ages. Listen, and duration in office and checking the, the impulses of a wayward majority is what the issue is. Don't get stuck in the notion of the corruption of power in, in office. Look upon the offices as a way of resisting the, the, the drunkenness of the people themselves. And, and every regime has collapsed, and particularly democratic regimes has been, the life has been nasty, brutish, short, solitary, and disgusting. And no one in their right mind, as, as, as Federalist 9 indicates later, no one in their right mind has been able to defend popular government. I mean, the history of the world has not been that way. And here we are going to defend it. So rise to the occasion. And in our own lifetime, the Soviet Union has collapsed. And who would have thought that? Um, and certainly not a lot of people who went into Soviet studies. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and, in, and, in, and in my lifetime, I mean, I was, I was raised in the, in, in, in the then British West Indies, just like Hamilton was. And I, and I, I was raised in Trinidad. And, uh, and when I was a kid... The, we, we have this map on the wall, and, and, and the, 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 British, the British Empire was in pink all over the world. Uh, you know, and the, the idea was that the sun would never set on the British Empire. I'm being a smart aleck then, and of course I'm not anymore. I've grown out of that. And I was sort of putting myself to sleep up here. That, uh, I used to say, well, the reason why the sun never set on the British Empire is because it never rose in the first place in London. <laughs> I thought as a 10-year-old, that was pretty good. But, but it did collapse. Every regime has collapsed. What makes us think that this regime is not going to collapse? But they thought they had the answer or the hope that they could have it to remote futurity or for the ages. And so part of the whole point to this seminar is to recapture that hope and to recapture why they thought they had it. And... Maybe we can learn something from them. My, my position is, is, in this is to approach James Madison and ask him, what can you teach me? Too much of contemporary scholarship says, listen, James Madison, this is what I can teach you. And if we approach it in that way, we won't learn very much. So he goes on about, this, about the Senate. 
And he says, look, in framing a system which we wish to last for ages, we've got to take care of something that's going to happen. And, he, and he's very blunt. He says, I'll tell you what's likely to happen in the future. He's already suggested that religious problems could come from a majority imposing its own religion on, a, on, on others. It can come from a majority imposing its own will because it can on others. But he's also particularly concerned about economic liberty. Not because he is some massive property holder, but he anticipates socialism. He says, look, no agrarian attempts have yet been made in this country, but symptoms of a leveling spirit, as we have understood, have sufficiently appeared in, a certain, in certain quarters to give notice of the future danger. That is, if you wish to have a regime which is basically on private pro- based on private property and, 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 uh, and private initiative, you've got to watch out for schemes that substitute, in effect, equality of outcome for equality of opportunity. And that, I mean, among the many things that Madison is prophetic, that has got to be up there on the list. And this is in the 1780s he's talking about this. By the time the French Revolution comes in the 1800s, you get the birth of socialism in France in, in, um, in, in the early 1800s. And by the time 1830s come around, you've got, um, uh, you've got the birth of communism. And, that the, and, the, and the rage of Europe is the class struggle by 1848. And it's fascinating that if you take a look, if you project forward to 1848 in Europe, the specter that's haunting Europe is the class struggle. And what is it? The leveling spirit versus such a... Whereas what is troubling America is the question of, um, of, of, of how, do we, how do we understand the Declaration of Independence and how do we, how do we make it work in practice with regard to, to, to African-Americans. And, by the way, this is very interesting, 1848, what's going on in, 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 in Europe is that Europe is burning. Berlin, Rome is burning, and it's a class struggle and a class war. The 18, event of 1848 in America is really two things. First of all, Seneca Falls, which is the first w- women's movement, and, and the, uh, the argument there is, to, is, is, is not to repudiate the Declaration of Independence, but to, but, to, but to argue that the Declaration of Independence should be extended to include, to include women. So there's no animosity to the Declaration in terms of 1848. And moreover, in 1848, you've got the start of California, which is one of the most remarkable events that you could possibly want to see, where, in fact, um, ordinary people did a remarkable thing. That is, they drew the boundary of California to stop slavery going to the coast. And prior to that time, as again, you will be learning over today and, and, and in the next days, with the, with the, uh, the, the Missouri Compromise Line, goes that uh, all the way through. If you take that all the way through to the West Coast, it would land in Monterey. And there was a deliberate act to, to stop slavery spreading to, to, the, to the Pacific by changing the by changing that formula and having the border of California go down the Colorado River and that way stopping it. And that, I mean, that's a remarkable event by an extraordinary event by ordinary people. And that's a story that should be told and retold. That's part of the, what I'm getting at in terms of recovering this, uh, these, these, these moments. Well, see what's happened? We've talked about all this greatness as a proposition on the table. How long shall senators serve? And... Madison is arguing for nine years. Well, that's going to... Who do you think is going to get upset with that? Roger Sherman. Sure enough, next page. 
Mr. Sherman, government is instituted for those who live under it. What is he saying? Remote futurity? What are you talking about? See, Sherman in that regard still is not at the, what I would call the level of a founder. The, a founder is thinking about the ages, not just thinking about the present. It's like a good parent. You, know, you have to withstand certain pressures of the moment and be able to think long and hope that the kids come along. And, and they'll probably only come along when they have their own kids. But Sherman is saying, in effect, government is instituted for those who live under it. So let's focus. It ought, therefore, to be constituted as not to be dangerous to their liberties. The more permanency it has, the worse it, if it be a bad government. Frequent elections are necessary to preserve the good behavior of rulers. Where's Sherman? He's still interested in the good behavior of rulers. And what is Madison interested in? The good behavior of the people. Once again, this is a, uh, uh, the June 6th speech between Madison and Sherman. If it shows the difference between the extended orbit versus the small republic, this exchange between Madison and Sherman shows the dis- difference between what do we want out of a Senate? Madison, we want duration out of a Senate, for with duration in office comes the ability of the office holders to do the right thing and think long and think good thoughts instead of immediate thoughts. Sherman, that kind of duration in office is too much of a temptation. Corruption of power, the temptations of power are what we have to be guarding against. And Madison, far from guarding against the temptations of power, you're inviting individuals to, to be that way. And he goes on, he says, they also tend to give permanency to the government by preserving that good behavior because it, ensu- it ensures their re-election. In Connecticut, elections have been very frequent, yet great stability and uniformity both as to persons and measures have been experienced from its original establishment to the present time, a period of more than 130 years. He wished to have provision made for steadiness and wisdom in the system to be adopted, but he thought six or four years would be sufficient. He should be content with six years or four years. And what, is your, and what, and what happens? Right. Once again, Roger Sherman has made his way into the argument at a critical moment. And, um, and Sherman's point then is that six should be long enough to secure what Madison wants, namely the wisdom stability, and yet short enough in order to, in order to resist the temptation of corruption of power in those in office. Sherman is, in fact, showing, I'm willing to go along with a lot of what you're saying, Mr. Madison, if you just bend a little bit and listen to the tradition that's going on here. All right, so that's the point to doing this little exercise on um, on, on June the 26th is to show you that in the midst of a discussion about equal equal representation in the Senate and the duration of the Senate, we get a, a, a fine... Um, conversation about um, where the danger to liberty lies, and what is the po- and why are we here, and how do you de- how do you create a system which is supposed to last last for ages, and how do you anticipate difficulties, and how 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 much foresight Madison had in terms of the difficulties of the Madison's Federalist Ten, the most durable um, the most durable cause of faction. Um, is the, the most common and durable source of faction is the property question. 
The property question takes two forms. It's the question of the amount of property and the variety of property. And Madison says of the two, it's the amount of property question, the, the many who are rich, excuse me, the many who are poor versus the, versus the, many, uh, versus the few who are rich in terms of wealth is the, is the big question coming up in the 19th century. And we have to be prepared for that. And, uh, so, and I think that's full of foresight in a conversation dealing with, with the creation of the Senate. On June the 29th, <clears throat> page 218 in your text, Mr. Ellsworth, this time rather than Mr. Sherman, Mr. Ellsworth moved that the rule of suffrage in the second branch be the same with that established by the Articles of Confederation. I mean, what, this, is, this is June the 11th again. This is the same old stuff I, I, where, where he's saying, I want, um, just give us equal representation for the states and the Senate and everything will be well. He was not sorry on the whole, he said, that the vote just passed had determined against this rule in the first branch. Right? That's fine. We can go along with popular representation in the first branch. He hoped it would become a ground of compromise with regard to the second branch. And, and, and here is a breakthrough. It's, it's another day that's important. Right, you know, June the 6th, important. June the 11th, important. June the 26th, important. June the 29th, important. Why is June the 29th important? Ellsworth says, we were partly national, partly federal. Again, with Lucas and Chris you will be spending some time on that Felicitas phrase. It is covered in Federalist 39. We are partly national and we are partly federal. This is the first time in, my, in terms of my research where that phrase appears. And what it means is, um, is, is, is the following. Look. We are used to being federal in the old-fashioned sense of state-based. Now Mr. Madison is raising the the, the opportunity, along with George Washington, of being a nation of people. I'll tell you what we are. We are both a nation of people, partly national, and we're a nation of states, partly federal. Isn't that what we're looking for? So Mr. Ellsworth says, in effect, to use contemporary language, let's think outside of the box. Up till now... All you folks have been saying is we're either going to be the Virginia plan, which is wholly national, or the Articles of Confederation, which is wholly federal. And why don't we be Americans? Why don't we be entrepreneurial? Why don't we drop those old-fashioned categories and, and say it like it is? We're American. What does that mean? We're partly national, partly federal. But no one has ever done that before. Oh, well, that's American too, isn't it? Now, the question is, is this a mere compromise, a way of just getting us out of the difficulty, or is there a principle involved? That's the point. Madison's first reaction to this is, ugh, this is absolute total nonsense. Uh, I mean, if we adopt this, we're adopting, quote, a mere compromise, something that the world has never seen before. Oh, yeah, so you're worried about the world not seeing something before, Mr. Madison? How about the Virginia plan? The world has never seen that before. Well, the world has never seen this before, but it's a lot closer to who we are, and we can work with it. And Madison, at this stage, is dubious about the principle form. Why? Because for Mr. Madison, the principle of justice is 
consent of the governed, popular representation. He has yet to get it through his head, and, and, and it's very clear why, get to get it through his head, that the states qua states require equal representation as a matter of principle. It is a matter of accident for Madison that states qua states have equal representation. It's an accident of colonial history. It's an accident that they were, they were around in that fashion. We're going to have more states coming in, and we're going to draw their boundaries. You don't draw a boundary of an individual. An individual is born, but you can change state lines. It's lights change all the time if it's a flood. Just, uh, and, and New Jersey and New York will argue with each other over who owns what. I mean, it'll, it'll happen. But so there's nothing about a state qua state that deserves that kind of treatment. So, so Mr. Ellsworth, you are in fact, and Mr. Sherman, in your argument about equal representation for the states, are avoiding the issue of justice, and the issue of justice is popular representation. And that's it. And Mr. Ellsworth is introducing this new phenomena. We are partly national, partly federal. The proportional representation in the first branch was conformal to the national principle and would secure the large states against the small. An equality of voices was conformable to the federal principle and was necessary to secure the small states against the large. So Mr. Madison is saying, that's a principle? All you're saying is that it's a matter of interest and balancing of interests. So that the question of a state is a matter of interest, not a matter of principle. Well, so the day endeth. And on June the 30th, Madison uh, tries to get the conversation away from this equal representation of this in the Senate again, but is not successful. And on page 226, Mr. Davey from North Carolina, this is another reason perhaps for North Carolina being up there shaking hands with Mr. Washington and signing. Mr. Davey, who's never said a thing before, who's a young kid, says, two-thirds down the page, we were partly federal, partly national in our union. Oh, it's catching on now. And he did not see why the government might not, in some respects, operate on the states and then others on the people. See? What a national government does is operate directly on the people. Think about it this way. Under the articles, the national government, quote, unquote, couldn't operate on the people. There was no direct dialing. You had to go through the operator. And the operator were the states. And the operator could disconnect, disconnect the union at any particular time. So you've got what Virginia plan does is direct dialing. And what Ellsworth and now Davey and Sherman are saying is we can have direct dialing in certain cases and operator assisted in other cases. Why don't we divvy it up in that fashion? We are partly national and partly federal. Dr. Franklin says, you know, we've got these two opinions here. And uh, he says, well, it's, wor- it's worth thinking about. And he goes on, or goes on, does go on a little bit. And it's this little speech, which, which he doesn't say partly national, partly federal. But it's this little speech which has been picked up by Franklin lovers and in, in your historiography to say that Ben Franklin was critical in securing the Connecticut Compromise. Um, but the evidence is, to the extent that Franklin assisted 
well, let's put it like, he, he helped, but he was not the initiator. Sherman, June the 11th. Ellsworth, June the 29th. Davy, June the 30th. Partly federal, partly national. That's where it's coming from. It's coming from the Connecticut delegation rather than coming, and, and now North Carolina, somebody from North Carolina. That's the switch. If you want to see, ask yourself the question. Well, up till now, North Carolina has been a solid national supporter. On the Connecticut Compromise, North Carolina shifts the vote. Can I locate the moment when that, when that situation shifts? You got it right here. When Davey is saying, so one of the North Carolina delegation is starting to rethink this question, is willing to consider the idea of equal representation in the Senate. So, on July, the, fortunately, the next day <clears throat> is a Sunday. Unfortunately, June has 30 days. And so the next day they meet is a Monday, July the 2nd. And they vote on Mr. Ellsworth's proposition. Now, where have we come from? June the 11th, it was defeated by a 6 to 5 vote. Okay. Now on June, July the 2nd, two weeks later, the same proposition is coming up again, but by Ellsworth. And the vote is 5-5-1. Now, you're talking about the accident. Georgia divides. Up to this time, Georgia had four delegates, and, well, till recently, four delegates, and they all voted together and never opened their mouth. And two of the delegates were actually representatives of Georgia in the, in the Confederation Congress. And the Confederation Congress had difficulty getting a quorum. And so the Georgia delegation held a, held a little chat here in Philadelphia and said, look, we've never disagreed before. Why don't two of us stay here and represent Georgia's interests in Philadelphia? And two of us take a carriage and go to New York and represent Georgia's interests in the, in the Confederation Congress. And that way, we've covered Georgia and being responsible. Well, wouldn't you know it, the first time the Georgia delegation disagrees is on this day. And that throws the entire convention into, into turmoil. What are we going to do? And they decide to create a committee. And I invite you to take a look on this committee. And this committee is outlined for you on page 237. And there, the reason why this is important is that up until this time, they've been in the Committee on the Whole. Committee on the Whole means we all meet together and we all discuss everything and we can rediscuss. This is one of the earliest occasions when they decide to delegate responsibility. That is, we're st we're, we had enough talk now. Um, Franklin says maybe we should pray. Um, and there's a, a story which subsequently has been denied. It's a rumor, but, it's, but somebody said that uh, Hamilton said, uh, no, 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 we shouldn't pray. We don't need any foreign aid. <laughs> and if anybody would have said it, it would have been Hamilton. Um, the others said, well, you know, we can't pray without a preacher, and there's no preacher here, except that there was Roger Sherman. Um, Roger Sherman, what an interesting fellow. I mean, he, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke. He didn't cuss. He only wanted to talk about politics, but never on a Sunday. And, and he was a preacher. 
but he declined. To, to, and the point was, you couldn't have a prayer unless you had somebody lead you in prayer. And another person said, well, we can't go outside in the streets of Philadelphia uh, looking for a preacher. Can you imagine? Here it is on July the 2nd. We're going out to look for a preacher. We've been here for six weeks or more. And now we need, some, now, now we need the power of prayer. Give me a break. What was that? <laughs> well, you know, they, and, and this is the way a lot of good story, good healthy stories are started. There's this, uh, it's this cemetery in Southern California, uh, um, out near out near Burbank. You know, Chris, they, uh, they have themes. But, but, yeah, uh, forest lawn. Forest Lawn. Before Disneyland, Forest Lawn cemeteries were the number one attraction in Southern California. I guess. <laughs> anyway, they each have their theme. And then in West Covina, the theme used to be Greek and Roman nudes, and then they pushed them away from the freeway. And then and in Burbank area, it was the Americana theme. And there's this wonderful... Uh, you, you go in there, and it's American, and, and, and they've got this freeze on the front. And then it, first is the convention in loggerheads, not knowing what is happening. And they, oh. the second frame is Ben Franklin leading the convention in prayer. And the third frame is the signing of the Constitution. I mean, it's a nice story. What's wrong with that story? It's a very healthy, wonderful story. And it's the stuff of which good, good, Noble legends are, are, are made. But they didn't pray on that particular day. And instead, they created a committee. <laughs> and the committee is, given, is shown to you on page 237. And I just ask you to take a look. At, 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 this committee was elected by ballot. That means the entire convention got together and elected one representative from each state. Now, New Hampshire still hasn't quite arrived. And Rhode Island will not arrive as a matter of principle. So let's take a look at who's from each state. From Massachusetts is Mr. Jerry, famous for gerrymandering. And he's probably the least high-toned of them all, and the most, probably the one most willing to compromise. Rufus King is out of it in terms of willing to compromise. So is Gorham, and Caleb Strong could be, put, could be persuaded if Mr. Jerry goes along with it, okay. um, to anticipate. In the Connecticut Compromise, Massachusetts was divided. You've got Caleb Strong and Jerry on one side, and you have Rufus King and, uh, and Gorham on the other. But Jerry is the one who is likely of that bunch to take the lead in peeling away from the position of we need a strong national government to heck with equal representation for the states. And he has status. He's a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's willing to bend. And if he's willing to bend and not put the principles of the Declaration in danger, then let's go with him. So Jerry is selected. Mr. Ellsworth, well, you know how Mr. Ellsworth's going to vote. He's going to vote for equal representation in the states, if he, for, in the Senate for the states. Mr. Yates, Mr. Yates of New York, not Mr. Hamilton from New York, but Mr. Yates. Mr. Patterson, he of the New Jersey plan. Dr. Franklin, all right, see, Dr. Franklin would be the one person from the entire 
Pennsylvania delegation who would be willing to compromise. The rest of the crowd are very, very strong behind Mr. Wilson uh, and, 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 and pro-Madison on the principle of proportional representation is just equal representation for the states anywhere is a matter of injustice. Mr. Bedford from New Jersey, I mean from, from Delaware, that's, that's clear they're going to go along with that. Mr. Martin, well, Mr. Martin is, is a state's rights man of considerable. Mr. Mason, well, now this is going to be an interesting one. Who, who could have gone from, the, from Virginia? James Madison. James Madison was not chosen. The delegates, to me, that gives a clear sign that the, dele- the, the sense and the mood of the convention at that time was compromise. And Mr. Madison's principles were being listened to, but he has had his say. It is now time for action. And we turn to Mr. Mason. Mr. Mason's reputation is as the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights and a prominent person within the Virginia delegation, and we're going to go with him. Mr. Davey. Oh, Mr. Davey. He's the one who just said partly national, partly federal the day before when he opened his mouth for the first time for North Carolina. Oh, he's going to be fine. Mr. Rutledge, rather than Mr. Pinckney. Mr. Pinckney from South Carolina is the high-toned fellow. Mr. Rutledge is not a soul. And Mr. Baldwin. And what is Mr. Baldwin good for? Mr. Baldwin's from Georgia. Mr. Baldwin was one of the two people who were left here in Philadelphia. Mr. Baldwin was the one who voted in favor of the Ellsworth proposition, thus dividing the Georgia delegation. In short, you've got a group of people here who have made it clear that we are going to be partly national, partly federal, and that's it. They're all on board. Is it a mere simple compromise, or is it a principle compromise? You had a question? When you say they're voting by ballot, so is it like people in the Connecticut delegation are voting for who's going to come from Virginia? Yes. That is my understanding, that you have these 39 delegates there, and the job of these 39 delegates is to choose one representative from each state. That's my understanding. And this is the first sort of committee that's created, not of the whole, but of a part. And it gets the name of the Jerry Committee. And fortunately... (coughs) The next day is July the 4th. And they take a break. And they go and listen to the reading of the Declaration of Independence, right up there on, on Race Street. And then they come back on July the 5th. And wouldn't you know it, on July the 5th, the Jerry Committee has a compromise solution. And the compromise solution is given to you on page 237, the very first thing on Thursday, July the 5th. The committee to whom was referred the eighth resolution of the report, ah, Thank goodness somebody remembers what we were talking about. The eighth resolution. A report from the committee of the whole house, and so much of the seventh as has not yet been decided upon, submit the following report, that the subsequent propositions be recommended to the convention on condition that both shall be generally adopted. And there are actually, as we go through it, the, the and I'll just put a slight adaptation here, is that this is the Connecticut Compromise. First of all, then, we'll have popular representation in the House, free plus three-fifths, elected by the people. And we shall have equal representation for the states in the Senate, elected by the state legislatures. We are partly national, partly federal. 
Now, the adaptation I want to make is the following. What is it that gets Jerry and Mason to buy into this? What, what is, there must be simply more than, let's go home. There must be some principle for these principled operators. And it's this. There is a glue. There's a third feature to the Connecticut Compromise, which is not often mentioned, but I'm going to mention it, and I'll tell you why, because it's there. But there's another reason, and, uh, and I'll mention that in a moment. Here's the glue. That money bills... What are we talking about? Yes, it's exactly mundane thing. That money bills will be introduced in a House and shall not be amended in the Senate. Three features to the Connecticut Compromise. People elect the House. Representation, free plus three-fifths. The states elect the Senate. Equal representation for each state in the Senate. Plus, money bills shall originate in the House and shall not be amended in the Senate. Uh, what, why is that important? Well, it's there. Secondly, the reason why it's important is that Mason insisted on it. Why did he insist on it? Because of the principles of the Declaration of Independence, no taxation without representation. That is, if you're going to tax, which is what representation is all about, you have to tax. The people, it's the people who are going to be taxed, not the states who are going to be taxed. Therefore, if the people are going to be taxed, money bills, which is taxation bills, must originate in the House. Moreover, why should we let the Senate, which is representing equal states, where a majority of the people, see, what, what happens is the majority of the people are represented in the House, whereas a majority of the states are represented, in fact, in the Senate, which represent a minority of the people. Okay? Why should, then, a minority of the people, in, in effect, in the Senate, be able to alter the taxation of the House? So that's the glue. Yes? Uh, but does the Senate still votes to approve a money bill, It's introduced in the House, but isn't it? Cannot be amended. Cannot be amended. Can't be, can't be disproved. Can't be rejected. That's my understanding. Uh, certainly, they cannot amend it. Yeah. Okay, they cannot amend it. Well, let's 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 go find. Well, let's get 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 the exact language. So let me go to August the sixth. All bills for raising or appropriating money and for fixing the salaries of office of government shall originate in the House and shall not be altered or amended by the Senate. Well, I guess they can say no. I guess your point is take well taken. They can say no, but they cannot be altered or amended. I th I think you. The thrust of it is that it starts, it, it starts in the House and the, and the Senate can't change it, right? But I think if strictly read, then the Senate can, can say no, but I don't think that's what they had in mind. Rig might be a harsh word. The idea of what has happened is that... <clears throat> I mean, what is the story of Act Two? The story of Act Two is you begin with optimism. You've got the amended Virginia plan on the books, and you think... All right, let's get to the presidency, the judiciary, and everything else. And what happens? You get these pesky losers who won't give up, who raise the rule of law, who raise it won't fly in Peoria, and then come up with this principle. We're partly national, partly federal. And then create a committee to carry it into effect 
And Madison is, I mean, he must be saying, not another loss. I mean, you know, not again. I'm going to lose in this one, too. But, you know, you lose certain battles, but in the end, you may win the war. But that's part of the discourse. I'm not meaning, I'm not meaning to simply tote up, look how Madison lost. That's not, I'm trying to show the, the nature of the conversation. Who changed their minds? What made people change their minds? It's this concept of the partly national, partly federal. And I really do invite you to read carefully Federalist 39. My, one, of the, one of the things that has happened to me as a result of paying so close attention to the Constitutional Convention is I can never read the Federalist Papers quite the same way again. Because I'm, I was used to reading the Federalist Papers from today looking back. But if you read the Federalist Papers from the Convention looking forward, then the June 6th speech comes out at you. The June 26th speech comes out at you. The June 29th, June 30th, partly national, partly federal comes out at you. And then you see Madison, in other words, really trying to explain what's going on, trying to understand things, and using concepts that he might not have used. And so it, to me, it, it gives even more power to the beauty of the Federalist Papers by being able to retrieve not only the anti-Federalists, to whom they were responding, but also to the convention that they were attempting to explain and the constitution which had emerged. And how Madison explains partly national, partly federal is, is, is a what? I keep rereading it and re I would read it and reread it and then go back to the convention. And uh, so, so one of the issues, I mean, there, there, are, there are a couple of interpretations. The dominant interpretation, which comes from Gary Wills and Martin Diamond, is that if you take a look at Madison's 39th Federalist, where he goes partly national, partly federal. It's a shell game. Now you see it. Now no, it's partly national, partly federal. Partly here. Or do you see this? Look. Watch me scratch my left ear with my right hand. You know, that's kind of... Uh, and, the, and it may be true, but why don't we take him seriously first before we... That interpretation presupposes that Madison uh, didn't buy in... And, didn't, didn't buy into the partly national, partly federal at the end. He didn't buy into it here. But, but did he, in fact, buy into it at the end? And, and, and So I think it's a very interesting... He didn't invent those two phrases. And when he says, as understood by the opponents, this is what he says in Federalist 39. We'll look at it. Well, it's not, quote, simply the opponents out, out of doors that created it. It was the people inside the convention that created it and created a committee to make sure that they came into being. Exactly. I mean, look, at this convention, you will see high road and low road. You'll see people say, my state. You'll see people say, this is justice. you see the whole range of things. So the high road will be, show me, Mr. Ellsworth, Mr. Uh, uh, Sherman, that buying this, buying this deal you're offering me is not simply a deal to get us to the 4th of July, and are we just going to bequeath this problem to the next generation, or just go home? Show me, in other words, that, that after six weeks here, buying into partly national, partly federal, has a principle at it. Because so far, I understood there only, there's only this principle of popular representation, or this principle of equal states and an alliance. What's the principle involved in this thinking out of the box other than somehow, hey, look at it. Look what I did. How clever I am. And I think the glue 
where it says, money bills shall originate in the House and shall not be altered or amended in the Senate, is somehow the principle which enables this to say, I can buy into that now. Why can I buy into that? I can buy into it because it secures popular representation. It's the idea of no taxation without representation. I am not having a violation of majority rule on that key question. Look, money is so important to Americans. Some of the, I mean, no, I'm serious. The incredible amount of, 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 of wonderful debates that take place over the issue of money. So I think that's it. When we get to the next act, one of the very first things that happens is that Madison introduces that we drop that money bills provision. And, and people say, all right, all right. Madison says, look, if we really want a Senate, which is what I've been arguing, why shouldn't we let them alter and amend money bills? That's precisely why we want a Senate, because the money bills provision might be intemperately used. And so that gets changed. So that in the final constitution, money bills are introduced, but can be altered or amended in the Senate. And so you say, well, now, why, is that, why was that important to me in the first place? Because I wanted to establish what John is getting at, namely, is there a principle involved? That gets Jerry on board, it gets Mason on board, it gets Randolph on board. It means nothing to Madison, because his idea of the Senate is precisely to be able to do something about money bills. And the reason it's important is if you want the moment, if you want to identify the moment that Randolph, Jerry, and Mason, the three people who refused to sign on September the 17th, when do they start peeling off? That's the moment. The moment that, that, the, that the convention overturned that glue in the Connecticut Compromise is the moment that Randolph, Mason, and Jerry start having doubts. At this particular stage in the convention, the states' rights issue is shall the states elect senators. States' right issue is, shall the states be equally represented in the Senate? Once that is secure, which is the Connecticut Compromise, then they can start getting to other issues. And then the other big issue is, all right, now let's start talking about power. Once we've talked about structure, let's talk about power. What power? Well, how much power shall the federal government have over against how much power the state governments have? So that the states' rights argument shifts from where do the states fit into the structure to how much power is reserved to the states. And that comes in Act 3.